I'm Katya. And I'm Rin. And we're here at the Commonwealth Center for Holistic Herbalism in Boston, Massachusetts. And on the internet everywhere, thanks to the power of the podcast. You know, I pretty much have to say woohoo. Woo. Yeah, yeah, afterwards. No, you now, it. because I just do it every time. It's necessary, yeah. Woohoo! Yeah, nice. <laughs> hey guys, we're not doctors, we're herbalists. And we're holistic health educators. <laughs> Lest you thought we were doctors. We are not doctors and we do not play them on this podcast. No, indeed. The ideas discussed in this podcast do not constitute med- medical advice. No state or federal authority licenses herbalists in the United States. So these discussions are for educational purposes only. Everyone's body is different. So the things we're talking about may or may not apply directly to you. But they will give you some information to think about and research more. We wish to remind you that good health is your own personal responsibility. The final decision in considering any course of therapy, whether discussed on the internet or prescribed by your physician, is always yours. So, so what shall we do today? Well, actually, today um, I'm going to be talking about cumin, among other things. Um, and I came across this wonderful quote from British herbalist uh, Maud Creeve about how disagreeable cumin is, and therefore fennel is often used instead. (laughs) Disagreeable. Totally disagreeable, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to hold you in suspense on that quote for just a minute, um, because I wanted to talk about fennel um, just before I I jump into cumin. Sure. Um, You will find more information about fennel on page 78 of our new book, Herbal (laughs) Medicine for Beginners. (laughs) Which is on pre-order at Amazon right now. And should you go and pre-order it, um, it will magically ship to you on May 15th. And uh, it will arrive with our gratitude. Yeah. In fact, this week our book plates are arriving. And so if you live who knows where, far away from here, and want us to sign your book for you, you can just send us an email and we will... um, inscribe a lovely book plate for you and send it to you and you can put it on the inside of your book this is a sticker that you put inside yeah book. it's like a, yeah it's no like a book i had just sticker. never heard you you discovered this word and i was like book plate you didn't have those a when you were plate. a kid no i like never the heard sticker of that. to put inside your books to say this book belongs to so and so i mean it has I like a picture had, of a cat or I didn't something know the that they had a, i didn't know they had a name yeah the book plate a book plate that's what that is you guys <laughs> These are the sorts of things you come to our podcast to learn. (laughs) Anyway, shoot us an email at info at commonwealthherbs.com, and we will be more than happy to inscribe your book for you. Um, But what I was really talking about was fennel. So distractible. Um, So we we love fennel. It is the perfect herb for Rin and I. Our bodies are really opposite in a lot of ways, some of them kind of comical, and... um, but in this particular sense, it is that he runs really dry and I run really cold. Uh, but fennel is like the perfect plant because it's got something for both of us. Yeah, you know, oh. fennel has what? I was going to say, a lot of times, comically, Rin, we'll be teaching and Rin will be starting to talk about a plant and how much he loves it. And he'll be waxing poetic and I'll be making like gag sounds. <laughs> I'll be yeah. like, that plant is so gross, I can't stand it. It's like kava or who knows what. <laughs> and, and it's just because our bodies are really different. And so sometimes certain plants really appeal to one of us and not the other one. And that goes inverted too. 
there'll be plants that I just love and he's like oh man I can't even like I don't know what yeah. you're talking about right right we love to crack our students up with that but but fennel is not one of those fennel is a friend for both of us yeah yeah you know so fennel it's got this moistening quality to it it's a little bit uh, um, well a little mucilaginous in there but so fennel it's soothing it's great for when I'm getting all dried out like I might have dry mouth I might have um, for me, often the dryness will lead to some kind of gut cramping or just tension. Uh, so yeah, it's really nice when I'm having those kind of things going on. Um, it's just soothing, relaxing, and a lot of that is, I think, mitigated or, or passed through the moistening effects that the herb has. Yeah. I really love fennel because it's so warming. Um, I find something warming really soothing after eating. And that warming action makes digestion easier because it takes a lot of heat to digest your food. And just like keeping your house warm in the wintertime, um, you know, heat is expensive. It's, it's hard. It, it's not easy to generate heat. So having a plant that helps you to do that is really, really excellent. And fennel also has a, a lovely antispasmodic action. And Rin and I both are really prone to holding tension. So mm. that's one that we both appreciate a lot. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, in our book, we've actually got fennel in a whole bunch of different formulas. Um, it turns up in our gut heal tea on page 168. Uh, we've got it in a bitters blend a little later in there. Um, page 174, if you're flipping around. Yeah, right. I'm sure that's definitely happening. <laughs> uh, there's a couple formulas for bloating, and fennel turns up into there, and there's some for lung support, page 139. And 151. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> cool. So I hope you guys got all that. There will be a test later. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, if you want to learn a little bit more about fennel and also 34 other great herbs, then head on over to Amazon and pre-order, pre-order our book today. Unless you happen to be listening to this podcast after May 15th, in which case you can just order it today. Yeah, Yeah. just have it. That's for you. Yeah. Awesome. Robots will fly it to your house. I don't know. I think they do that in England. I think that happens. Yeah. Yeah. There's flying robots with books. I mean, (laughs) better than other things the robots could have, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Uh, We should just stop now. Flying robots with books. We're done podcast title yeah (laughs) no not really yeah uh hey so what else is going on well tonight i'm so excited we are hosting a taco party and i y'all may not know this but i was raised in texas see that was like the most she's let her texas accent come out in like months that tiny little y'all did you hear that y'all because it wasn't just your sort of everyday y'all it had a thing it was there. I don't know. <laughs> you guys can rewind it. You can, you can, it, it's there. It's there. I, I did grow up in Texas and, um, but when I moved to New England, when I was 15, the kids in the neighborhood, I moved in the summer and they were like, oh, you can't go to school sounding like that. And so they spent the summer teaching me how to speak without a Texas accent, which served me really well because then I went on to study foreign language and to manipulate lots of accents coming out of you know like all, mm. all different kinds of whatever anyway the, the practice i'm from texas yeah and um i love tacos i love tacos oh my god tacos yeah today she's actually wearing a shirt that says more love more peace more tacos you got to have priorities yeah. <laughs> so in anticipation of delicious delicious tacos 
I thought we could talk about the medicinal aspects of the herbs in taco seasoning. This is a good idea. <laughs> so I endorse this. Um, this is when I make tacos. It is usually with cumin and coriander um, slash cilantro. It, we're the only place where we say cilantro. Everyone else says coriander. Um, here we make the distinction. We call it cilantro if we're talking about the leaves, and we call it coriander if we're talking about the seeds, whatever. It's the same plant. Um, also, cayenne and onion and garlic. Yum. So let's kick it off with cumin. Cumin, um, well, actually, you can grow cumin just about anywhere. Um, but it sort of started out in Mexico and Spain and the Middle East and India. It's sort of in that band. I just invented a band there. I th it, like, if you look at a map, that's a very jagged sort of band. Um, but whatever. It's a punk band. It's a... <laughs> Um, it's a Bollywood punk band. Is that? Yeah. 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 Um, and. There are it, a lot of those probably. It is a, a parsley family plant, um, which uh, cilantro is, coriander is as well. And this is a, and this is a theme that we're going to be on today, a, a carminative with some stimulating action and some antispasmodic action. And you really see that in, in cumin, that it's, it traditionally um, settles the stomach uh, for flatulence, for IBS, any of that kind of dyspepsia, indigestion kind of stuff. All through those cultures, you see cumin um, really, really coming to light. And also, you know, we have a student who grew up in Morocco and talks about cumin yeah. Um, a lot for stomach problems. And some respiratory things, actually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so cumin has actually been studied a huge amount for all sorts of things. Its effect on gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria. It's this and that. I mean, like, all kinds of stuff. Uh, even for effects on the nervous system and a possible benefit for Parkinson's disease. Really, in our practice, we turn to cumin for that digestive stuff. Um, and he's cracking up about something over there. I think he's reading ahead in my quotes. Um, they're coming. They're coming. Yeah, and you're going to crack up, too. Sorry, no. I, um, I couldn't help myself. I've just got these quotes here next to the microphone. So stay tuned. By the time we get to them, you're, you're going to be like, well, that, that was sort of anticlimactic. Yeah. Um, That's but, what we're going for. <laughs> But it is, it's this warming effect that we really, really love. And especially in today's culture, I feel like everybody's sort of run ragged and a little depleted. We don't get enough sleep. We don't get enough. Um, we get a lot of stimulation, but that stimulation is sort of cold in nature. Like electronic stimulant, media stimulation, it's, it's all very cerebral. And I feel like the kind of stimulation that we get today kind of pulls heat from the core. And so I, I'm looking at like, you know, Tulsi and ginger and all these herbs that we turn to that are really warming and how central they are in our practice. And even when we're working with digestive bitters, we're looking for those warming ones. They're so, so key. And so cumin really falls into that category. But Maud Grieve really did not like cumin. And Maud Grieve um, is the author of 
um, A Modern Herbal, which was ultimately published in 1931. And, um, you know, everybody, not everybody, but um, lots of people have those books or they, when they're maybe doing internet research of herbs, um, that her books are in an abridged form at botanical.com. So this will be something familiar to lots of people. And I was just, you know, whenever we're going to talk about a plant, we always sort of just go back because it's so easy to put a plant in a box and just mm. be like, ah, oh, this is what I do. But and then you realize that you've totally forgotten about this other awesome thing. And yeah, so we try to we try to do that as often as possible, yeah. so that eventually at some point we might remember half of the things that we know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Eventually, you know. But Maud points out that cumin is actually in the Bible. And for those of you who um, know these sorts of things, it's in Isaiah and in Matthew. Um, and uh, But also in Hippocrates and Dioscorides and Pliny the Elder. And like all of these people were writing about cumin so much. Um, it was actually very common to be made into bread, uh, which... I can't, I'm not sure that I can think about cumin bread. It's such a meat spice in Mm. my, in my mind that I don't know what cumin bread would taste like, but maybe Mm. we should make a gluten-free version and see. Yeah, totally. But, but she mentions in two different places, a distinct dislike of cumin. And she mentions in, in one Cumin has now gone out of use in European medicine, having been replaced by caraway seed, which is has a more agreeable flavor. And that just cracked me up. Um, I love caraway. I love it so much. But um, but I don't not like cumin. I mm. just it cracked me up that she wrote that. And then later she mentions the older herbalists esteemed cumin superior in comfort in comforting carminative qualities to fennel or caraway but on account of its very disagreeable flavor its medicinal use at the present day is almost confined to veterinary practice in which it is employed as a carminative <laughs> feed this to the dogs yeah. <laughs> this disagreeable flavor <laughs> oh, Maud, you're so great. That's pretty good. Um, and, you know, just a little interlude here on Maud. Um, like I said, many herbalists have her her super famous two-volume set. Um, you know, for a long time, there just weren't tons of books available. And her set was, was when I got into herbalism, it was considered absolutely standard. It was like the book, if you were going to have a book. Um... It was originally written during World War One, though it was not published at a book as a book at that time. It was published. Uh, it was serialized, and it wasn't. Ult- it wasn't ultimately published as a two-volume complete set until 1931. Uh, Maud Greaves' given name was Sophia Emma Magdalene, but everyone just called her Maud, and I can see why. Um, and she really wanted to contribute to the war effort. Um, and, you know, especially in World War One, herbalism just played an enormous role in medical care. Pharmaceuticals were available, um, but, I mean, they were available in that general time period, but during the war, they really weren't very available. So doctors and nurses and the general public turned back to a lot of herbal ways of managing infection and disease. 
And so this was an area where she already had education. She was a horticulturalist and a botanist all her life. Um, she was an educated uh, woman and, and, you know, having grown up in the late 1800s and the early, um, by the early 1900s, she was already married and, and off to India where she also was studying botany and she studied Ayurvedic medicine. Um, so this was, um, this was a service that she felt she could provide. So she wrote this book during the war. She also started a school. It was called the Wins Medical and Commercial Herb School. Not Wins like winning and losing, but Wins W-H-I-N-S, which I'm sure has some old British meaning. I don't know what. Um, the Wins. The, yeah, Wins. Anyway, um, at tacos. I think we were talking about tacos. Yeah, at some point. At some point. <laughs> No, it's fascinating. Um, a lot of that stuff we don't always hear about, about Maud Grieve and her life and her involvement with herbs. Sometimes it's sort of like, I don't know, this person came mm-hmm. out of somewhere and wrote this book and then we all have it. And we just trust it because great, everybody thanks. has it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the story's good. Herbalists, a lot of a lot of herbalists who have written books and have had their name out there uh, in the in the ether for a while... They have they have interesting stories. I'm thinking of Culpepper and mm. Samuel Thompson and uh, Hildegard von Bingen, for that matter, and like all of these people who just very intriguing individuals. I would love to see a whole movie made about Maud Grieve, just based on you know just based on even that much information that I just shared. Yeah. It would be a really interesting movie, and she had many other interesting <laughs> things that happened in her life. Um, there was there. It was just really a very interesting life, and I'd love to see one about Hildegard too. Yeah, it would be really, be really, really cool. Didn't I mean, it would just be a fun something? movie, even if you weren't an herbalist. I think. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Tacos. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. We're organized so, today. We're so it. coriander. Um, coriander again, a stimulant, aromatic, carminative. And that is through the seeds. So in this country, when we say coriander, it specifically refers to the seeds and not to the leaves. The leaves in this country, we refer to as cilantro. And a lot of people don't know that it's actually the same plant. It's the same plant. Um, The leaves are really actually quite high in vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin K, and also not a shabby amount of minerals as well. So kind of a lot like parsley there. Um, and, you know, there are some people who don't like cilantro as a flavor. They, <laughs> That's an understatement. They have that, that genetic propensity to taste it as soap. And there's a particular um, constituent in cilantro that, that most people don't really pick up on. But between 4 and 14% of the population, um, I checked those numbers just for y'all, um, do pick up on and I think that's really interesting but I do not fall into that category and I do love cilantro Mm. more cilantro would be more better um and then cayenne here and guess what we're you know stimulant carminative you're, you're seeing a trend here right it's not just the digestive warming action and the digestive stimulating action here but all these plants are also diaphoretic And these spices are most commonly found in the cuisine of hot places. You don't find spicy recipes in Scandinavian food or Russian food or like Norwegian food. In Russia, they have, Russia is a 
um, I went to university, a, a lot of university in Russia, and it's a, a very prank-oriented place. And so they have this concept of the lucky whatever, and I'm thinking of it in terms of pilmeni, which is sort of these little dumplings. But they do this in other other recipes also. But they have this idea of like, oh, the lucky dumpling. And you, whoever gets it is going to be lucky for the, whatever the time period is. Um, but it's lucky because it's loaded up with hot peppers. And so you bite it and it's like burning your mouth and whatever. But, they, but other, than, other than this concept of playing a prank, they really don't have spices in their foods and in the foods of most Northern cuisine because it's cold. But in the South... You see, or, or it, you know, the closer you get to the equator, because if you're in the southern hemisphere, then I guess that would be the north. That would be. Um, the closer and closer you get to the equator, the more and more spicy hot that the foods become. And what's going on there is that that's opening up the pores and allowing, even though it is warming the core of the body, it's also stimulating the heat to be released by the body. And so ultimately you end up with a net cooling effect in your whole body. Um, I can't see that in my body right now because here I am wearing like, you know, warm pants and a hoodie and, a, you know, whatever. And so that diaphoretic effect may be a little lost on me because even if you open up the pores of my body, I still have on my warm clothes mm. to, to still trap it in. Mm. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, so that it's the warming to the core, but also that releasing dispersive action. And then, of course, you cannot make tacos without onion and garlic. They're just requisite. Um, and onion and garlic have so many excellent aspects. Um, they are, you know, high in sulfur, high in antimicrobial action. They're like nutrient dense and infection fighting and just all like I can't think of anything any system in the body that onion and garlic don't have some beneficial effect on um nope can't think of one mm. so uh so put them in basically everything garlic for fingernails they're not so much with the minerals maybe the, well sulfur sure. but I, I okay all right Maybe I don't think of them as high mineral plants. Okay, we thought we thought of one thing, you guys. One thing. So, uh, so there you go. The medicinal actions of taco seasoning. And if that sounded delicious to you, then um, you should have your own taco party. I think everyone should have a taco party. And spice it like you mean it. Yes. So much cumin. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, well, so I wanted to do a brief thing with you guys today. Um, I had promised in an earlier podcast that we would come back and talk about a little bit of phytochemistry. So uh, today we're going to do just a little concept here that I think is important. And this is probably one of the parts of phytochemistry that you appreciate more than certain other ones. Because <laughs> um, this is where we remind ourselves that the qualities we observe in our plants cannot be reduced to a single constituent or even a single class of constituents. So by that I mean, when you get an herb that is uh, what we call demulcent, this is, this is going to be an herb that is going to increase the viscosity of the water you make tea of it in. It's going to make... Uh, or in other words, it's going to make it slimy. Yeah, slimy, thick, 
um, coating, soothing, um, snotty in some extreme <laughs> in some extreme cases, you know. Uh, so these are going to be plants like your mallows, common mallow, and of course, uh, of course, marshmallow, and then uh, things like slippery elm is a very famous demulcent. Um, fennel has a bit of demulcency to it. Linden, violets. There's definitely a range. Seaweeds. You know, like some things are, even within, just within the seaweeds, you know, Irish moss is like, so demulcent. And kelp is like, it's kind of moistening. Yeah. 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 No, they do that. That's true. And so there's variation there in terms of like how, how subjectively or how, how empirically um, changed your menstruum has become. Uh, and that's something that we need to pay attention to. But also, uh, that quality isn't just reducible to a singular kind of uh, chemical compound. So a lot of times people will talk about mucilage. And um, they'll say, oh yeah, these plants, they have mucilage in there, that's why they're demulcent um, and soothing and so on. So mucilage itself is, is actually a particular type of a polysaccharide, and polysaccharides are basically just long and complex kinds of sugar molecules. So they turn up in plants for various reasons. A lot of times these are just fuels or uh, reserve sources of energy the plant is storing and then moving around. But um, some of them are going to acquire other qualities and effects in the plant and in people. So mucilage is one of the more obvious mucilaginous (laughs) compounds that you're going (laughs) to come across. Um, And it does play a big role in certain plants' uh, demulcent quality. So like in marshmallow, the root can have up to 35% of its weight be made up of this uh, this polysaccharide. So that's, you know, more than a third or just just over a third of the the thing you're holding is that particular substance. Um, In the leaf, it's going to be a little bit less. It could be as much as 16% there. Um, So... Uh, there's going to be variation between different parts of the plant, and of course that is, again, something that you can observe for yourself. If you take, you know, a couple tablespoons of marshmallow root and a couple tablespoons of marshmallow leaf and infuse them in separate jars of cool water for six hours and then take a look, you'll be able to feel and taste and observe the difference in the thickness there. Um, And that's actually really handy because if you have someone who needs that moistening action... But they also have, like, some adversity to that feeling. Um, They don't want to consume slimy, snotty, viscous tea. Then going with the marshmallow leaf instead, where it has a much lighter um, slime factor, you know, like, like so it's light and gentle and it doesn't feel slimy when you're drinking it, but it still has those moistening qualities. It still has those complex polysaccharides. Um... So that can, like, knowing that that range is out there can really make it um, something that you can do to uh, adjust your formula to be more palatable to the specific person that you're working with. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, these polysaccharides, it's basically just the more of them there are present, the more slimy, the more uh, hydrating, the more viscous the infusion you make is going to become. However, uh, if you were to like take a look at a list of a bunch of plants that are known for being demulcent and being moistening to the body when we work with them, and then compare their values for mucilage content, you'll see that the mucilage itself can't account for all of the demulcent quality that each of these plants has. 
So there are some plants that have uh, very low mucilage content, but are really, really demulcent. So for instance, okra is uh, a vegetable that is very um, slimaceous. Um, but super slimaceous. That's like yeah. it's if you know if you know anything about okra, you know that it is slimy. Yeah, but it has very small content of the actual like chemically defined you know this particular type of polysaccharide mucilage present in it maybe less than one percent um as far as herbs go uh this can go in both directions like you can have an herb that has um a lot of demulcency to it but has low amounts of mucilage like flaxseed for instance has maybe two percent maybe eight percent mucilage in there um but flax is pretty pretty slimy you know you can make an infusion with that you can use it as a replacement for eggs so like as a binder in baking so yeah it's it's pretty pretty slimy you'd think that would compare pretty favorably to say marshmallow leaf infusion you know it seems to me that a flax infusion would be more demulcent than Mm -hmm. marshmallow leaf so anyway um that that leads us to realize what we always are going to come back to when when it uh comes to phytochemistry that this isn't just one thing it's not the only thing that's going to explain what we observe and so in plants you're going to often encounter pectins or gums or other types of constituent that are all kind of in the broad family of being polysaccharides but have different individual structures and are going to contribute to the overall quality, the overall, you know, uh, taste and mouthfeel and all of that. Um, so we need to just kind of keep that in mind so that when we talk about a plant and say, yeah, this is really, really demulcent, we don't also, like, equate that with it's got a lot of mucilage in there. Um, that's... You know, when I, when I, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, go ahead. When I first was learning herbalism, um, the you know the whole phytochemistry side of things was still not very um, nuanced because you know I mean things were it, it was it was the beginning of the revival um, or sort of the maybe the end of the beginning um, and I learned those two words as complete synonyms completely mm-hmm. interchangeable demulcent or mucilaginous it doesn't and that's something. Absolutely, it was demulcent because of its mucilage content, and that was all there was to it. And this much more nuanced view is actually really helpful because the different types of polysaccharides in there, uh, you can work with them in different ways. Pectin, for example, um, and also inulin comes up. These are these are prebiotics, and so knowing that is really helpful. And knowing that, oh, part of this um, demulcent aspect can, is this prebiotic aspect. So in this person's case, uh, I may want to choose one that has that emphasizes those pectins and inulin over straight mucilage, yeah. for example. Yeah, exactly. Especially as our understanding of the microbiome is getting more and more nuanced. and yeah. Right, right. And then... Um... One other thing that we'll see uh, is that there are some plants where they may have a a decent reading for mucilage. Uh, For instance, I was surprised to see that blessed thistle um, could register as high as 20% mucilage in it. Uh, And so I I was like, well, that seems odd. So I made a cold infusion. I took two tablespoons of herbs. I put it in a half pint of water. I infused it for nine hours. 
and then I strained it and drank it, and it didn't really have any noticeable demulcency to it at all. So on that other direction as well, you know, it can't just be that one that one compound being present on a on a biochemical assay, right? We wouldn't just say, oh, well, if an herb has mucilage in it, then it's going to be a moistening plant. Blessed thistle is not a moistening plant. No. It's, a, it's a quite drying plant. So, um, you know, we need to keep that in mind, too. If we do start looking at plants from a chemistry-first perspective, um, as sometimes happens, especially if it's one that you haven't worked with before or that it's foreign or to you and your experience or... Um, you know, you don't have any other information about it than that mm-hmm. it has some some compound you may have some familiarity with. Um, just a reminder to, to, you know, kind of hold that that urge to jump to conclusions at bay. Um, another thing that can really strongly influence the um, the quality or the observed effect of a plant is the the composite of com- constituents that's present in there. So by this I mean like uh, in the case of mucilaginous aspects of it. Um, those may be present, but there could also be tannins present in the same plant. And tannins are astringent, and they can bind to the polysaccharide content uh, that's in that same plant. And that is going to sort of uh, mitigate some of that moistening quality the herb has. It's going to kind of, uh, I don't know about distract or use up or just um, form a, an inert complex with those polysaccharides, at least until you start to digest them. So if you look at something like... Let's see, where's a good example? Uh, well, cinnamon is a good example. So cinnamon, um, it has some mucilage content to it, has some other things that contribute to a demulcent quality, but it also has a decent amount of tannins present too. And this is something that you can, again, don't take my word for it, you can detect this for yourself. Um, I made a cinnamon tincture a while back, and I like, <laughs> I like this preparation because you can see both sides of this at the same time, or you can observe both sides, because one you can look at and the other you have to taste. So like... You take your cinnamon tincture, and it's actually really thick. You know, like it's I was so viscous. I was very surprised. Um, basically, just you know, take some cinnamon chips, put them in a jar, pour in some vodka, let it steep for a few weeks, and then go ahead and try to strain it out. Um, but you might need to let it drip for a while because it really, it really thickens up in there. Yeah, and then when you try to draw, he, he finally got it strained. It took like I don't know more than a day, mm-hmm. and now that it's in a tincture bottle, when you try to like let a drop fall out of the tincture bottle it like has this long tail (laughs) it like stays attached for a really long time like inches and inches and inches until it finally breaks off yeah it's really comical yeah but then but then you taste those drops of tincture and you get a few of them on your tongue and you feel that good old astringent kind of drawing together Mm. uh sensation on the taste buds so you can you can detect both of those with your senses. Um, it's strange, actually, to think of something with mucilaginous content and demulcent qualities to also be so high in tannins. Right, it's unusual. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is a little surprising when we have these herbs that are kind of uh, tonifying and moistening at the same time. You know, yeah, it's because you got something like that going on. You know, there's there's something similar actually happening in plantain. Plantain has a decent amount of tannin content, and it has you know some mucilage as well. For me, I've always felt that like I've seen I've seen different sources write about plantain's energetic qualities in both ways. I've seen some write it as moistening and some as drying. Um, my impressions have been that if you get the plant fresh, then it has a Much obvious more. moistening quality yeah. to it, and then when it, once it's been dried, then 
that's kind of it really has that draining lost. drying not, quality yeah. right yeah 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 exactly so um these are also i think this is a, a something to keep in mind when we're thinking about scientific studies done on herbs in the united states because these kinds of complex um Nuanced conversation, conversations are not typically happening in our scientific studies. You can, simply because they're only looking at the chemistry of the plant. They're not also looking at the traditional preparation and what happens when, what, oh, there's mucilage there. Well, let me go find out for myself. I want to put it in some water and see. They're not necessarily, um, they're not trained to do that kind of work. The way that other countries compensate for that. Uh, or uh, compensating implies that they saw there was a problem and fixed it. They never had the problem because in other countries, they their research teams are made up of a combination of herbalists and chemists and whatever. But in this country, we don't um, we don't consider herbalists as you know worthy of being on scientific teams or whatever, which is not. Not really good. I mean, lots of herbalists don't love science, but I think when we when we do science on herbs, we still need to also have that that traditional aspect and get those two perspectives into the same study, whether one person has both sides of that or whether we get two people who really specialize, one in the chemistry and one in the traditional application, and put them together and then let them co-discover some stuff either way. Um, we, do, we need to have both of those things represented in order to get the full spectrum of understanding in our studies. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that'd be super good. You know, um, about astringency and about tannins, like just like we don't want to equate uh, demulcency with mucilaginicity, <laughs> uh, we also don't <laughs> want to equate astringency with tannicity. Um, so astringency is that that feeling of the 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 drying or the tightening up of the taste buds when you put something like this on your tongue. The unripe banana mm. or unripe persimmon feeling in your mouth. Yeah, or even if you have one of these uh, uh, plants or herbs that contain these things, and you get it on your hands and you soak your hands in it, you'll feel it there. You'll feel like the skin feels dry. It's like the creases in the hand get deeper. Um, think about if you're cutting up a, um, uh, what's it called? A butternut squash, mm -hmm. uh, that has a, a astringent quality to it. Um, and your hands will start to get that, that sort of like dry, almost chapped feeling. Um, so these are places that you can observe the, the feeling and the effect of astringency directly. Um, you know, when you take astringents internally, they're going to tighten up mucosal membranes and that can be useful for healing. But if you go overboard, then it can give you a, a belly ache. Right. Yeah, it can cut, it can get you all the way into cramping. Like, right. oops, tightened too much. Yeah. So astringency, um, again, the impulse of a lot of herbalists is to say, oh, it's astringent, it's got tannins. Um, and I'm totally guilty of doing that sometimes. <laughs> but um, tannins are, are the most notable uh, constituent that's going to contribute to an astringent quality, but they're not the only one. Um so you also get things that are in the same kind of basic class of these flavonoid phenolic compounds. Um, there are, for example, these things called OPCs, or the, the acronym is for oligomeric proanthrocyanidins. 
um, which sounds like an invocation. <laughs> you know? It's like a Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oligomeric proanthrocyanidin. You know, like it's great. Boom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something, something's going down. You know, right? So that's fun. Um, but these are these are actually you get them in uh, in tea, uh, green tea, Camellia sinensis, or black tea, um, and. Uh, these are related to some of the very famous uh, antioxidant compounds that are found in green tea. Um, it's basically you start out with a small base compound, and then you, the plant, in the course of its metabolism, will add other pieces onto that, and it will get longer and longer and have different qualities as, as the molecule kind of grows. Um, and at certain stages, they're really effective antioxidants and really good for cellular health and warding off um, mutations that are undesirable and, and all of that kind of thing. Um, but uh, as the molecule gets longer and longer, it gets more and more astringent, uh, more and more tannic, and ultimately becomes a, a type of tannin itself. So um, it would be kind of like these precursor compounds or these these um, not-quite-built-up-all-the-way compounds that uh, become tannins later, they still have astringent quality before they kind of reach that threshold and reach that uh, that category. So there's that. And then there's also the fact that there are some other um, astringent qualities that are unrelated. They're not, they're not a class of flavonoid or phenol or anything like that, but um, the major ones there are going to be the acids in plants. So that could be things like malic acid or oxalic acid or tartaric acid. You find these in different herbs. Malic acid, guess where that comes from? From apples. Because it's malus, right? Malus is the apple genus. Malus. M-A-L-U-S. Like the Malleus <laughs> maleficarium? No, wait, that's different. That's about hammers and not apples. All right, well, never mind. Because um, <laughs> of course it is. Yeah. Okay. So, um, oh, and also there could be like acetic acid um, like you get with vinegar. Some plants will just produce that uh, in their tissues themselves. And maybe a more famous one would be citric acid, which you can maybe guess where that one comes that from. That one, yeah, that one's okay. a lot more familiar. All right, sorry. Uh, cool, well, anyway. That's okay. We actually love this about you. Yeah? We, yes, all of us. We, all of us listening right now. We, us here. We love this about you. Can yeah. you say, can you give your invocation again? Uh, oligomeric proanthocyanidins. Yeah. See, we love this about you. Yeah. But actually, one thing that I, I was thinking while you were while you were talking about this is that this is actually kind of the beauty of the science of herbalism. So this is why we study energetics. And again, energetics—it's an old word. It sounds a little weird these days, but it means understanding these exact actions. It is something astringent? Is it moistening? Is it warming or cooling? Uh, those actions are observable by the human body. And then when we start observing them with more precise equipment, we can start to see, oh, there are, uh, there's a variety of things that can lead to that action. And so whether you're a person who loves microscopes and love chem loves chemistry and all that stuff, and you want to know, I want a list of every constituent that can create the action astringency, then that's awesome. And if that's not your cup of tea, 
it doesn't mean that you're not working with science. You're still, you can be on that sort of macro level and be saying, okay, here's my category of plants that have astringency. And when I need that type of action, these are the plants I'm going to turn to. And so you can still be categorizing them with the chemistry equipment that comes standard with every human, um, which is your tongue and all of the other senses that you have. And that, that, that's just standard equipment, standard issue. Everyone has it. And if you want to upgrade your equipment and uh, get yourself a microscope and get yourself other precision instruments, then that's also cool. But the bottom line is that really digging into what am I feeling? What am I observing? What am I sensing? And what does that mean about how this plant works is what's going to make you a really good herbalist. Hmm. Yeah. Well, for sure. Um, you know, I was kind of talking about the, the plant acids in a way to lead us over into an herb I find really interesting in this regard about astringency and demulcency and tonicity and mucilaginicity and all of this stuff, uh, which is hibiscus. Um, because hibiscus kind of like smashes all of these things together. Um, it has a decent amount of astringency to it when you make hibiscus tea. Um, it's got like... 15 or 20 or 30 percent of its uh, makeup is these fruit acids so there's a lot of that kind of thing going on and you taste that that sour sort of citrusy kind of acidic taste yeah um it's got some some stuff called uh hibiscus acid in it which I found <laughs> kind of interesting it's like oh yeah you get to just be that because that's where we found you we didn't we didn't have a harry potter name for that no. one yeah. today we, no yeah. you just that's it uh a bunch of that in there, you know. Um, but then there's also a lot of mucilage content um, in some samples that was really high, like 60%, 65%. Um, in others, it was more like one or two. So big range, for one thing, uh, which is another weird weird aspect you get with a number of uh, these plant constituent studies. Well, um, I think a lot of it probably has to do with where it was grown. Oh, sure, yeah. And then, of course, on the other end, the part that we can um, control or manipulate or influence is how it's prepared right? because uh, different methods of preparation will favor different of the constituents. Hmm. So, you know, here's a plant that has some notable uh, rehydrating capacity to it. Um, hibiscus isn't or we give to people who are constitutionally dry, but it also has that um, astringency that's like locally uh, tonifying and, and then drying effect on the mucous membranes from all of these plant acids. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't have any actual tannins in it. Um, so it's not achieving the astringency through the presence of that kind of like, you know, noteworthy type of compound. Um, so it kind of fills in for a bunch of the things I wanted to just highlight and bring out today. Uh, also it tastes really good mm -hmm. and it looks pretty and you can use it to make herbal Kool-Aid so that people who are not sure about your weird beverages might be a little more inclined mm -hmm. to enjoy them. Something about giving somebody a red drink. Then, Why is that so appealing? But it is. Yeah. Good things will yeah. happen. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, we could make hibiscus Kool-Aid to go with our taco party, except suddenly it just occurred to me we don't have to because we have some white wine infused with hibiscus. Yes, we do. And we can serve that. Yeah. Yeah. So we can have a nice cooling beverage with our warming tacos. It's going to be great. Sounds like a plan. Okay, uh, well, so we'll go do that, and we'll see you next week. Next week.
Bye, everybody.